Hello, I'm Richard Lee. This podcast is sponsored by Squarespace. You can find out how they can help you build your own website at squarespace.com. The Guardian. Not histoire est cassée. Notre amour s'est brisé. I have had the most wonderful experiences at festivals. And when I sit on a stage and an author is really explaining their work to the audience, to me, bringing it to life, reading it, and it lifts off the page, it is such a privileged experience. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast. This week we're staring into the colourful kaleidoscope of the literary festival. First we fly to the Caribbean, where we discover how a classic of post-colonial literature looks in its home setting. You can't atone for the history of slavery. You can just do what I think Jean Rhys does. You can try and be honest on the page. Because there's this race and class and social stigma that prevailed in the Caribbean throughout the 1890s. The Caribbean is a very charged area, racially, politically. We have a complicated history. Back in the UK, we take a look at the economic miracles which underpin these cultural powerhouses. If you're not paying authors, you're just missing out one of the lines in your balance sheet. And we finish in Lahore, where we catch up with writers who fetched up in Pakistan from as far afield as South Africa and Palestine. Well, I, I live in Nairobi. My dad is South African. My mum is Zimbabwean. And yeah, now I stay in East Africa. Our first stop is in Trinidad, where this year's Bocas Lit Fest in Port of Spain was celebrating the 50th anniversary of Jean Rees's response to Jane Eyre, Wide Sargasso Sea. At a break between sessions, Claire Armistead grabbed a couple of guests appearing at the festival to discuss Reese's legacy. Elizabeth Walcott Hackshaw, who teaches in French and Francophone literature at the University of the West Indies, also happens to be the daughter of Nobel laureate Derek Walcott. While Sharon Miller, regional victor in the 2013 Commonwealth Short Story Prize with The Whale House, arrived clutching a first edition of Reese's classic. So Claire began by asking Miller what Wide Sargasso Sea means to her. I have to say it's, it's a revolutionary book in many, many ways. She raised so many difficult subjects. The Caribbean is a very charged area, racially, politically. We have a complicated history. And I think that she's been dead honest on the page and writing way ahead of her time. You know, I mean, there's a lot you can say about this book. You can look at the, the landscape aspect of it. You can see how she handles Rochester. But I still think much of what is in the book is absolutely relevant up to today. She's writing about a Creole character, i.e. white Caribbean. You're Creole, are you? Yes. So you're writing from the white Creole experience yes. in Trinidad today. How does that resonate for you? It's still a complicated area. I am a white Creole writer, and it's, it is a tricky area to navigate. It's, it can be difficult to approach the topics because, of course, you can't escape the history of slavery. You can't atone for the history of slavery. You can just do what I think Jean Rhys does. You can try and be honest on the page and reflect the repercussions of the society. I think in my own short stories, I'm very influenced by her bravery, and I try to do the same thing on the page. I try to look at something unflinchingly and write it as I see it even if it may be politically incorrect. Because there's a lot of, in sort of the era in which the book was first launched in 1966, right after that you would have had extreme pushback against colonialism and the birth of nationalist literature in the Caribbean. So to a large extent that, that still does go on. But you know, it's, in many ways it's a very brave book. I'm not sure if she would have 
been so brave if she'd known it was going to be so closely read in the Caribbean. I don't think she thought of the Caribbean as, an, as a market, really. Do you feel that you're in an awkward relationship with the culture in the way that Antoinette is represented as being? Obviously, it's it's in a historical context, but she the sense that she's an outsider, she's not really accepted, there are sort of different dialogues going on. It's You know, it's interesting. It's a hard road to... difficult to navigate the space. When I first published the book in 2015, at least locally, there were challenges of authenticity, just based on the colour of my skin. It was. I mean, that's, that's been... it's well known. And you just have to say, well, what else can I be but a Trinidadian writer? There is nothing else that I can be. But it is an uncomfortable space to be to be in. Um, and like Jean Reese, I go to landscape because I find the landscape can communicate the very difficult positions, the things you have to say. And the landscape does give you the room then to say what you have to say. But it is tricky space. There's a really interesting negotiation between French Creole and English in this novel. For example, I didn't I didn't know what a jalousy was before I came here. Is, is that something that's very big about it? I don't think in the actual linguistically that she uses a lot of the she draws a lot from the French Creole in terms of a language culturally though it's, it's interesting I mean that she talks about the obia and black magic whatever again that's interesting problematic problematic but it is part it is interesting and what does it mean to students today I don't teach white Sagasso C at the university so I don't know what the reaction is at the tertiary level what I do think, though, as someone mentioned during the questions, is that you can revisit that book with a lot of very 21st century questions. Students can go back to it and look at it from a lens where I think a lot of the, I think the actual narrator, the use of the first person narrator in the three different parts, I think that is something you can go back in, the use of the I and it can become problematic. I think the structure of the novel that I, I find as I, I, when I've read about it, people don't talk a lot structurally about the way in which the temporal and the spatial work in the novel. It's destabilizing, I think, the way in which it's structured. I think historically too, the different periods that she's writing from, if you go back at it and you look at it from a 21st century lens, I think there is a lot that can be said about the 19th century. I would agree with that. I think the three-part structure is, is brilliant, always is in a novel. I think of the optimist daughter mm -hmm. and I think, as you say, the, the use of the first person brings an immediacy that adds to that destabilizing effect because it is so very subjective. But to go back to the point of the French and the British, that was something that struck me a lot when I read this book because often the entire Caribbean is homogenized and people think that you know we all have the same history. And it's really interesting when you read a book where you see the conflict between the British and the French, sort of cultural wars basically between the British and the French that happened very much in Trinidad as well. So in fact, in one of my stories, I did address that. Up to today, there's still tremendous pride among French Creoles, people who consider themselves real French Creoles. You know, a lot of it has passed now, but it's sort of in my parents' generation. It's almost like the French Creole looked down slightly socially on the British, but yet there was this resentment because the British had actually come in when Coco had crashed. They'd snapped up all their states. So a lot of the French Creoles were made bankrupt. So sort of socially, 
held themselves in very high esteem, but actually had no economic power compared to the British. I mean, would you say that's but a fair I, statement? In, in this novel, though, I mean, you know, you look at other French Caribbean novels, I don't find that Reese draws a lot on that whole French Creole background. It's there, but to me, it's more of more brushstrokes um, yeah, than than actually going going into it. You get the dichotomy that comes from Caribbean, maybe England, or rational, irrational. But to me, not so much the nuances that exist in the French Caribbean and and in the Caribbean itself. One of the joys of festival life is their unforgettable encounters. Here's Harry Seeley, the current occupant of Jean Reese's house at 48 Cork Street describing his unique perspective on Reese's novel, as if he was looking through the jalousie at the carnival going past. You can experience the alienation then that she talked when she wanted to mix with the black folks, but her parents didn't want her to mix with them. So she could only stay inside and pull it down and look at them passing, look at their gaiety, the color of their clothes and how happy they look. She longed to be black, but because of the society in which she lived in. She could not be, because there is this race and class and social stigma that prevailed in the Caribbean throughout the 1890s, where you find the old colonial whites were clinging to hold on, tenaciously clinging on to the vestiges of colonialism or the privilege that they had. They didn't want to lose that. So there are things in the book like when Rochester goes up to the honeymoon house and um, he talks about a town called Massacre. Yeah. And it, that actually, or Massacre, yeah. the, it actually the, the exists. Call, it's called, the tongue is called Massacre. Yes, and Massacre usually e- exists. Now, Massacre got his name where the, the Indians or the Kalinagos, the first inhabitants of Dominica, they still live there. But there was a big massacre where instead of giving in then, the white rules, they decided, no, look, we're going to commit a mass suicide, we're going to cause war, anything like that. And they came behind the massacre. Does um, White Sargassosi mean anything in Dominica? Is, is Jean Reese celebrated? Intellectually, it means much, you know, to the people who are at the university and they're now trying to introduce it into the schools. But the popular literature, unfortunately, is not Jean Reese. She's sort of alienated. There's another writer, Phyllis Shan Olfrey, who I probably believe is more, you know, widely read than Jean Reese in Dominica. She's the author of The Orchid House. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. If you want to build a website, you have many options. But if you want to build it beautiful, there's only one. Squarespace gives you the power of world-class design, so you can do more than create a website. You can set yourself apart. See why some of the world's most influential people, brands, and businesses choose Squarespace. To start your free trial, visit squarespace.com forward slash guardian. But there's more to the world of the literary festival than deck chairs and ripples of polite applause. This January, Philip Pullman cast something of a cloud when he resigned as patron of the Oxford Literary Festival in protest at authors being expected to work for nothing. His position with the festival sat rather awkwardly, he explained, with his role as president of the Society of Authors, which has been campaigning for writers to receive fair payment for festival appearances. As peak festival season arrives in the UK, with Brighton, Hay, Bradford and Charleston all due to take place over the next month, we invited Nicola Solomon, the Society of Authors' chief executive, and our own Alex Clark into the studio to examine festival financials. 
Alex, I know you're currently researching a big article about this for Saturday Review, so I'm going to be the one who plays devil's advocate to give mm-hmm. you some leeway. And as regular listeners to this podcast will know, The Guardian has its own strand of live events, which we regard as an extension of journalism, which, Nicola, is to say we don't pay authors with a book to promote. And I have to say that once all the back office costs are factored in, it's a loss-making operation, which we run as part of our mission to represent books to our readers. Do you think this is wrong, Nicola? I think it's a very complex argument because festivals aren't all the same. We have the tiniest up to the largest. And our argument really is that you don't want authors to be subsidising something which gets you publicity, but it might be appropriate for an author to take part in something for themselves. It's a much more complicated economy than it used to be. But as a general rule, if you want a one-word answer, yes, I think it's wrong that you don't pay authors. Alex, there are apparently more than 350 literary festivals Yes, and I feel now. like I've been to quite a lot of them. Are there, are there just <laughs> too many? <laughs> I mean, the reason that I am particularly interested in this is that I go to an awful lot of festivals and then... I interview writers and almost without fail I get paid now I don't get paid a great deal of money. You get paid to chair one because yes. you have to read the book and you're not actually selling a book at the yes, festival. Yes, there's, there's no particular financial or perhaps even other type of gain for me to go. So I go to all these things. I chair events. Um, I often chair an enormous number of events at a particular festival because I like to be busy and I like the fun and the atmosphere of a festival. But I have to say it's become increasingly clear to me that festivals as a sort of financial model, and this actually extends to other kinds of events too, are not really a workable financial model. And I think that this whole debate is very interesting, but the fact that authors don't get paid is a sort of tip of the iceberg problem. It is revealing the greater problem of the non-workability of this financial model. But this is the financial model. How are we going to change that? Are we going to get plutocrats to put more money into festivals or are we going to get the public purse to cough up? Well, as we know, the public purse is getting tighter and tighter. Nicola, what is the solution to To start with, it isn't the financial model. What's really interesting from the research we did in December is that there are plenty of festivals that do pay and it's really surprising to see who pays. Festivals of the same size might be paying or not paying. Lots of small ones pay more than large ones. Lots of festivals you would consider absolutely identical. You'll have one paying and one not paying. So some people are managing this in their financial model. They may be getting different types of sponsorship. They may be doing it a different way. But the important thing is that you recognise, and this was something that Philip Pullman said, if you're not paying authors, you're just missing out one of the lines in your balance sheet and you're not accounting properly for your festival so it needs to be sorted out when you sort out the finances and if you've got to pay for the marquee and if you've got to pay for the cafe then you should be paying for the authors. Set against this free work by authors is book sales. Now I know that if I chair a good event and if you say have 500 people you'd hope to shift a good quantity of books Mm -hmm. and that's part of what writers do them for isn't it that's why marketing departments get writers to go and talk to journalists it's why you have all this outreach stuff Claire it sort of goes against everything to disagree with you I don't like disagreeing Mm. with you but I mean you said 500 people now that is not the typical festival event and actually one of the problems is that very often attendance doesn't translate into book sales so this is what is always put in front of authors but you're going to sell books now 
The problem is really that you get these headline events where indeed, you know, at places like Cheltenham, at Hay, the really big festivals, Edinburgh, you may pack out a marquee with 1,500 people. And yes, a good number of them will go and buy a book. But the far more typical, and I think we need to be upfront here, this is what we're talking about. This is where the problem is. The problem is it for novelists, the problem is for memoirists, the problem is for the less obviously mainstream bestsellers. The problem is not when Nigella Lawson or Alastair Campbell goes to a festival. The problem is when a novelist on their fourth or fifth book goes to a festival. And they may have an enormous following. Their book may have been lauded to the skies. They may also get 30 or 40 people in a room. Those 30 or 40 people have paid seven or eight pounds, which doesn't generate an enormous amount of money. And they will then sell perhaps six or seven copies of book. That is the reality. Yeah, but Nicola, the other side of that reality is that I and Alex, you and I, have done plenty of nine o'clock on a Sunday morning panels with three unknown novelists, which are the outside bets that every good festival has to take because you don't know which one of them is suddenly going to become good. Those are going to be impossible, aren't they? You're not going to be able to pay them the same as you pay Nigella Lawson and balance the books of a festival. And so isn't the risk that then all those poor writers who really, really need the oxygen of publicity aren't going to get it. Well, first of all, we believe that everyone should be paid the same and it's surprising how much unanimity there is between authors that everyone should be paid the same. Secondly, the amounts that people pay when they do pay tends to be between 200 and 300 pounds it's not a massive amount and it is manageable and thirdly you have to think about the amount of time the author has had to be there on that panel you know you do these things you have to prepare you have to do your reading you have to get up the day before you have to go up by train stay there this is taking away from your writing time and some authors are very very comfortable with being on panels but many are really not they would prefer to have the old-fashioned model of sitting in a room writing their books and never being noticed or having to do anything again but that's not the world we're in we're in a world where people have a portfolio career and are expected to do a great deal to try and sell their books and one of the ways to do it is festivals but they should be adequately remunerated for that because the amount that they get for it is minimal and it's taking away from their writing time there are so many questions that come up in that. One is 200 to 300 pounds an event, if that's what the Society of Authors is arguing for. On our, our nine o'clock on Sunday morning panel with three unknown authors, that's 600 pounds in, in, in fees for just those people on the platform, yeah. which, as you say, Alex, might have 30 people in, might even have fewer than that. Well, that's absolutely no brainer. You get rid of those events, don't you? Well, this is exactly what I think the problem is. The problem is if you focus on paying writers and why that is ethical and correct, which I entirely agree with, you eclipse the fact that this whole thing isn't really working. Because a lot of people will complain that literary festivals have become other than literary because they have TV stars, because they have pop stars, because they build in music events, because they do all sorts of other things, and they're not really literary. Well, that's in order to sort of subsidise the nine o'clock on a Sunday morning events, and yet we do not want them to be there. The other thing that I think is really key is that festivals and events in general are incredibly price sensitive and somehow this is still overwhelmingly a middle-class pursuit that has failed to generate for itself a middle-class revenue. So, for example, people who would happily pay £60 to go to the theatre... Or to a football match. Oh, it's always the football match that comes up. (laughs) Yes, people will pay 50 quid to go to a football match, 60 quid to go to the theatre often, but raise a ticket price from 6 quid 
to eight quid and suddenly you get a sort of massive drop off of audience. Now, the problem for me on a totally different note, and I'm sorry to go off on a real tangent, is that this would all be very well if you were delivering a kind of diversity of festival audiences. You are not. You sit at a festival, by and large, your experience is talking to a very homogenous, middle-class, affluent largely white audience. But isn't that because festivals are delivering the appropriate readers, appropriate to the particular author? Therefore, it's an experience that's channeling readers towards that author, you know, which can only be to their benefit commercially. But that's really very worrying. We're already really worried about diversity in publishing. There aren't enough diverse people in publishing houses. There aren't enough books by diverse authors being published. We're really pleased to see that translated fiction, for example, is rising and things are slightly improving. But to say that festivals are only there to have the same audiences for the same books, I think is completely missing the point. Then really, who are we doing it for? Because what what festivals should be doing is what we should all be doing is promoting books more widely. We should all be promoting libraries. We should all be promoting bookshops. We should be visiting them. We should be reading to our children. We should be reading to other people's children. What we should be doing is making more of a reading culture. And to keep reading a very narrow middle-class pursuit is extremely concerning for everybody. And festivals certainly have something absolutely to add to this mix. But if we keep them homogenous, we're not doing anything worthwhile for anybody. So the answer to that is to put the price up to football tickets level and then you might get a more diverse audience? No, no, I actually no, no I, I don't agree. think so because in fact there are quite high ticket book events, many of them in London and they do find a market because they have that sort of rarity feel, they get a kind of feel of exclusivity and I don't think that's what either Nicola or I are talking about I just I know it's almost by statute obligatory to say something about libraries in any podcast <laughs> but I am going to say that the most diverse events I've ever done in terms of audience from class age race are in libraries now I will go and do that for free I have no issue doing something like that for free and I think a lot of writers wouldn't either the problem is that festivals have got to have an industry-wide look at themselves. And I think it's also one of those things where it is a, I say, I use the word industry rather kind of loosely, but it's something that's grown up kind of higgledy-piggledy, hasn't it? You know, we had not very many festivals years ago, which in fact writers might go to for free because they'd have a lovely time, there were four a year. The fact is they can spend their lives on a rail replacement bus at the moment. So of course it's quite right that they say it's taking away from our writing time. I think the experience of authors is something that's really important because when we did our survey, Obviously, fees have become the headline. But what was fascinating was about the way authors were treated at these festivals. And what there's enormous correlation. The ones who didn't pay also tended to treat authors the worst, and which is absolutely extraordinary. So you'd be expected to go along for nothing, but they'll also put an exclusion zone so you can't speak in enough for 50 miles around for another festival for Utterly three weeks. ridiculous. Which is ridiculous. We've seen quite a lot of that. There'll be things that say... Could you please do the 15-minute walk to the hotel? You know, don't get a cab unless you need to. I saw a note which said, please don't upset our sponsors. I mean, authors being treated in the most bizarre ways. And then there are other ones which treat authors so beautifully that they would go along extremely happily to sit around in the green room and chat to other authors. So it is about treatment. It's about making a good experience for everybody and making people feel comfortable and making it feel worthwhile. And what we say to authors is the money is one of the things, but work out why you're going, what you're going to get out of it, how difficult it is for you, and whether you 
you'll enjoy it. So you may well go along to your local festival, which is more like, of course, like a street party or something in the library. We wouldn't then sit there and demand that you pay. But, that, but that's contradictory. Isn't that a contradictory position? Because on the one hand, you're saying festivals should all pay. On the other hand, you're saying authors should make a decision about whether they're going to want to be paid. Actually, it's quite a simple distinction. If you are paying for tickets... On the whole, we would expect authors to be paid. And indeed, what was really clear after Philip spoke was that the public had assumed that authors were being paid. That if they were paying for a ticket, that money was going in some way to the authors. In the same way as if you're going to a pop concert, you assume that Madonna's going to be getting some of the money that you're paying over for your ticket. And people were amazed. And indeed, festival organisers have said to me, we had people coming up to us in the street and telling us off and going, pay your authors, what am I paying you ticket money for if it's not to go to the authors? So it's very clear, actually, as to when people should be paid. On top of that, though, since you're never going to get the remuneration that you would need to make a living out of it, you've also got to decide whether it's worthwhile for you for other reasons, which may be book sales, which may be contacts, which may be pleasure, a number of other things. I was talking to a public relations officer for a very big, one of the big conglomerates, and she was tearing her hair out because she said that A, factored into most authors' advances is an element for appearances, And B, she was always having to dissuade authors from accepting invitations to go to very little festivals, which she said, I know, won't serve their interests. Mm, mm. And then she would get invoice for their travel and things. It's all become kind of incredibly distorted, the landscape. This is the problem. Exactly right. There are always these deals between who pays for accommodation, who pays for travel. We know that in this country, travel can be exceptionally expensive and rather sort of long-winded. So there are all these problems... But the problem is we're not having, and maybe this is the beginning of it, I really hope it is, a sort of honest conversation. It's all kind of obscured because there is a sort of amateur culture. There is a, isn't this all jolly, isn't this all fun culture? But really, we need to sort of professionalise this world. And I just want to be really clear, having invade against the financial basis, I have had the most wonderful experiences at festivals. And when I sit on a stage and an author is really explaining their work to the audience, to me, bringing it to life, reading it and it lifts off the page, going into audience questions that are incredibly sort of unexpected and interesting. It is such a privileged experience and it is so wonderful. And at that moment, you want to kind of invite everyone in and you want to say, okay, festivals seem to have some kind of cultural barrier around them. A lot of people think they are not places for them. You're wrong. Come in. It's wonderful. But we actually just can't do it in this kind of background of a sort of let's do the show right here sort of mentality. We've actually got to work out how it's going to properly work for everyone. Well, let's move on to the how now then. How? One model is the foils model, the bookshop model, which is that you factor in the price of a book with the price of a ticket. Mm. Therefore, the authors are guaranteed book sales. You know, more banks, more, more oligarchs on board, more public funding. How, do, how are we going to do this? Or do we just shut down lots and lots of festivals and just say to authors, only go to the big four that pay? I think there are a huge number of different festival models and it's for festival organisers to be professional about it but to understand in reality all the costs and to pay for them in a sensible way. And another thing to look at, I would say, is schools visits. Partly because they bring books to everyone in a great way 
partly because there is now a very good model whereby most authors are paid and whereby people who get authors in for schools visits do understand that this is how the authors make their living. As well as writing the books, the visits are an absolutely essential part of their income. In the same way, we need to understand for festivals that if you're asking someone to give up their writing for a morning, and it's usually two days by the time you've got by the time preparation you've traveled up to Edinburgh travel, or wherever, yes. you need to be remunerating them accordingly and making sure that they're made up for the time that they're not writing. So it is just about professionalism. It is understanding that this is a business, it has to be paid for, and working out how your models work. I wouldn't want to say there's a one-size-fits-all model. I think there's a huge range of festivals and there's a way to run them. But when you sit down and plan it, you have to put in everything that you've got to pay for, yes, and that includes the authors. I've respect. I mean, that you know, the marquee industry of the UK is not sitting here having this conversation. But why are the authors, the people who make this festival happen, not being factored in? The New Odyssey is the definitive story of life, death and the survival on the refugee trail from The Guardian's migration correspondent, Patrick Kingsley. It's a story about who these refugees are and about the smugglers, coast guards, volunteers and politicians who help them or look the other way. Buy your copy from The Guardian Bookshop today for just £9.99 and save over 30% on the recommended retail price. Far from worrying about getting paid, some authors at Pakistan's Lahore Festival arrived with suitcases full of their own books to flog. This free event was teeming with thousands of culture seekers who piled in past police scanners to the grounds of a luxury hotel for a two-day literary binge. Claire collared a couple of authors who are only starting to make a reputation here in the UK. The Palestinian writer Susan Abulawa is the author of the sleeper bestseller Mornings in Janine and her latest novel The Blue Between Sky and Water. Zukiz Mavana hails from South Africa, but Claire began by asking her to trace the complicated story of her personal geography. Well, I, I live in Nairobi. My dad is South African. I have stayed in South Africa. My mom is Zimbabwean. I have stayed in Zimbabwe. I went to school in Zimbabwe. And yeah, now I stay in East Africa. And your most recent book, which was out in 2014, is London, Cape Town, Joburg, which is set in equally important world-changing period in South Africa. Yes, absolutely. It's set between 1994-2010. It's obviously a time when the world was changing a lot. Tell us about why you set this in these three locations at this particular time. The main character, one of the main characters is South African and I said it in 1994 because it was such a phenomenal time for South Africa. We had our first democratic elections and it ends in 2010 which is an equally very important time in South Africa because we hosted the World Cup and everybody's eyes was on South Africa and these were the two major, as far as I can remember, you know, 1994 and then there was the Rugby World Cup which was great in 1995 but not so much at least not as crazy as the 2010 World Cup. So these were the two times that were so important to South Africa. And I thought I wanted these two poignant moments to be the root of the story. Suzanne, your story, in a way, Zakiswa's story is a story of optimism. You know, things are happening in a positive arc. Your story is set against a background of horrible historical loss. Tell us about the story of The Blue Between Sky and Water. So The Blue Between Sky and Water is a multi-generational story of one family set in Gaza. 
It spans a period before the establishment of the State of Israel and after into modern times. And so it moves through some well-known, very public historic moments in Palestine's history. But the historic background is exactly that. It's a background and it's really kind of the infrastructure of people's lives at that time, in these times. But the real story is, is the story of, of these women in this one family who, for various reasons, lose the men in their lives in, in different ways. And it's a story of how these women navigate, navigate their lives and navigate ordinary themes of life that I think are quite universal. Themes of sexuality, of marriage, children, friendship, violence, patriarchy political upheaval, poverty, gossip, you know, soap operas. And, and I know that when people read something from our part of the world, there is this sort of expectation of pessimism and, and darkness. And, and I think people do get that, but that's really not what I see necessarily. It's true their lives are marked in a lot of ways by, by deprivation and violation in, in so many ways. But I think you know, people's natural inclination is toward normalcy and toward dignity and, and optimism. And I think that you find this. I think readers will find that, that, that kind of poignant optimism or desire for it in, in this novel. So the main character is, or one of the main characters rather, is Nazmiya. She's this kind of wisecracking, foul-mouthed, irreverent matriarch. She's very gossipy and, and sometimes overbearing, but immensely loving at the same time. And her daughter is often embarrassed by her. She's a rather reserved and quiet woman. Another character is, is a woman named Noor. She's the woman in the family who kind of gets lost in the world. It's generational, isn't it? So the novel starts with them being flushed out of their home ancestral village into a camp and some of the family then emigrate. And Noor is the lost grandchild who ends up in America abandoned. Yeah, exactly. And so she grows up in foster care in the United States and eventually finds her way back to Gaza. And her story really is kind of one of reconciling with her past and, and where she comes from and with her identity and her Palestinianness and, and American upbringing and so forth. So it's, she was a more complex and intriguing character for me. And there's one principal male, male character and he's actually kind of this ethereal, otherworldly voice in a way. He's born flesh and blood as a young boy, but during the Israeli attack in 2008-2009, he sort of retreats into his mind. He's very traumatized and he goes into um, this kind of coma state. And in his mind, he sort of, he roams, he traverses space and time and, and meets with of departed ancestors and so forth. And so he narrates a few chapters in his own voice and the rest of the book is narrated in third person, but his voice opens every chapter of the book. Susan Abelauer's The Blue Between Sky and Water is published by Bloomsbury Circus. Zukisma Vanna's London, Cape Town, Joburg is published by Quayla Books, and Sharon Miller's The Whale House and Other Stories is published by Peepal Tree Press. And if you happen to live in London, you can find many imported gems of African and Caribbean publishing at New Beacon Bookshop, just north of Finsbury Park. Next week we drop in on a Guardian live event with Lionel Shriver to hear what this US emigrant makes of Donald Trump. 
You can find more literary discussion on The Guardian website, on iTunes, on SoundCloud or via your favourite podcast app. Just search for Guardian Books Podcast. Until then, from me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Susanna Tresillian, thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.